Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. All right, we're going to finish Zechariah 11 today. And we took verses 1 through 14 last week, and we're going to cover the last three verses today because in between verse 14 and 15 is the entire period of the church age. And so it's just kind of a really cool natural break between those two verses. And then if you remember... The Lord was addressing how Israel was wiped out because they rejected their good shepherd, the, the Christ, the Messiah himself, and because of their rejection, they were wiped out and scattered in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and then there's this pause, this pause that you and I know to last almost 2,000 years now, where God has formed the church, he's working through the planet or through the church on the planet right now until he calls us home. And then in the tribulation, Israel will accept the idol shepherd. And so God has a declaration to close out Zechariah against the idol shepherd, I-D-O-L, not I-D-L-E, not idol like your car, but idol like a false idol that you'd set up on a shelf somewhere. And so before we dive into the word here, let's, let's pray and we'll jump in. Lord, I thank you so much again for this time together, God, I pray that your anointing would teach us everything from 1 John 2, 27 and 28, Lord, that you can raise up and foster and strengthen and grow an unashamed bride looking for your return, Jesus. Lord, thank you for raising up a people that is not ashamed to live for you in these days. Lord, as we are walking through tumultuous times across the earth we just pray that you would continue to give us laser focus on serving you and walking and abiding in you. And Lord, I pray that you would not let any fear come upon anyone that's a part of this church or in, in this world that is serving you, but God, pour strength into them and peace and joy and let them walk boldly in these days. The world needs it, Father. And I thank you so much for preserving your word. Teach us everything this morning, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Okay, so if you remember on our timeline here for Zechariah, this is kind of a timeline of the Old Testament. You've got from creation to the end of the Old Testament or post-exile. And we're at the very far right-hand side of this chart studying Zechariah. Remember, the children of Israel went to Babylon in captivity. They were there for 70 years. Persia conquers Babylon, and Cyrus sends them back to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple, and that's what you call the post-exile period. And during that time, God raises up Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi, and they're in, they're in Jerusalem trying to rebuild the temple, and they don't get very far because they're spiritually immature. And God raises up Haggai for a moment to try to convince them to press on and finish the temple, to do the work that God put them, put them to. They don't get very far, 
So Haggai kind of goes away and Zechariah is raised up to prophesy to push them to spiritual maturity. And that spiritual maturity would then allow them to finish the temple. And so that's kind of Zechariah's role. And remember, this book is all about Jesus. This is maybe the most messianic book in the entire Old Testament. And God speaks of the stone with seven eyes about Jesus, which is a link to Revelation. He speaks about his throne and Jesus being crowned. He speaks about Jesus the Nazarene, which is the only place in the Bible where God calls him that. The king riding on a donkey in Zechariah 9.9. The smitten shepherd, he speaks about Jesus being betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That's what we took last week in the first 14 verses of chapter 11. Jesus being pierced, we'll see next time in Zechariah 12. And then to close the book in chapter 14, we see his return in power where he destroys his enemies. So when you look at the outline, remember the book opens up with maybe the greatest call to repentance in the entire Old Testament. And then Zechariah is given 10 visions by God in one night. And those 10 start with the riders under the myrtle trees in chapter one, verse seven, and they close out with the four chariots in chapter six, verses one through eight. Then chapter seven and eight is kind of that interlude period where God declares that their fasting and mourning will be turned to feasting and laughter again. So Israel will be restored to the kingdom when Jesus returns. Now in Zechariah 9 through 11, we talk about the first arrival of Christ, and then the book closes with the second arrival of Christ in Zechariah 12 through 14. You know, another way you could kind of look at this is chapters 1 through 14, each one speaking of Christ in a different way, just to kind of give you a, a little bit of a different perspective. Chapter 1, the writing one. Chapter 2, the measuring one. Chapter 3, the cleansing one. 4 is the empowering one. 5, the judging one. 6 is the crowned one, which is Christ. 7, the rebuking one. 8, the restoring one and restoring Israel. 9, the kingly one. Remember, God was comparing Alexander the Great to the Jewish king, Jesus himself. 10, the blessing one. 11, the shepherding one. 12, the returning one. 13, the smitten one, and 14, the reigning one. So each chapter speaking of Christ through kind of a different lens. Okay, now remember, like I mentioned, Zechariah had a very, very high calling because all of those visions occurred in one night. I mean, I just have to imagine that he was probably physically exhausted after that one night with all of those visions and writing them down and hearing from the Lord. And as you as you progress, all of those visions cover, remember, from the very beginning of Israel's rebellion to Christ coming back, destroying their enemies, and setting up the kingdom. So it's like an entire paradigm of Israel's history. It's pretty cool. Now, the Jews know that a kingdom will be established, and it's amazing that even today, Israel is looking for their king. It's just that they missed, they missed him the first time, they will accept the false one the second time, really when they, when they are presented with an opportunity to accept a king, so to speak. They're going to accept the Antichrist the first time. Then, of course, they repent. Jesus comes back. They will accept him the second time. But it's amazing that they, even in Acts, were looking for the kingdom to be set up. And that's in Acts 1, 6 and 7. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, Jesus, saying, Lord, 
Wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. Now, notice that Jesus didn't say the kingdom would not be established. All he said is it's not for them to know the times nor the seasons. And I think that is amazing. He didn't rebuke that, that fact. Okay, so as we opened chapter 11 last time, remember it's given after the completion of the temple by Zerubbabel. And the first 14 verses of that chapter explained why the blessings and promises are delayed for Israel because they rejected the good shepherd. He presented himself in every aspect. They rejected him. And as a result, their disobedience led to the diaspora that where Israel in 70 AD was conquered by Rome. They destroyed the temple. They ransacked Jerusalem and the Israelites were scattered all over the earth. And one of the most amazing miracles in the entire history of man is the fact that for the better part of 2,000 years, Israel remained a people without a homeland. That, and when they returned, God prophesied that they would speak their native language. And indeed they do, original Hebrew. It's just incredible. But by rejecting their true shepherd at their first arrival, they had to experience rejection themselves. And all of that's a necessary prelude to the second advent of the true deliverer, Jesus returning and, and delivering them. Okay, this chapter closes, though, presenting what I know is the only physical description of the Antichrist in the Bible. Uh, I think this is the only place that describes him physically. The idle shepherd, he will shear the sheep and kill them for food. So remember, we're kind of continuing this shepherd theme because last time Jesus as the good shepherd Remember, he had the rod and the staff, and we talked about why a shepherd has two different instruments, uh, one to protect them from outside threats, one to keep them in line internally within the flock, and each one is used for a different purpose. Well, Jesus, as the good shepherd, he wanted to feed the flock. The idle shepherd will want to eat and destroy the flock. So it's kind of this wickedness of Satan is what we're studying right now to close out the chapter and unfortunately for Israel, because they miss their true shepherd, they will accept this false shepherd the first time he appears, which is so unfortunate. So just to cover the last ver two verses we did last time, and the Lord said unto me, cast into the potter a goodly price that I was prized of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. So remember the chapter last time where we closed, Jesus was prophesying about his betrayal for 30 pieces of silver, what they would do with the money by giving it to the, the potter. They'd buy a field with it and then the side of the transaction at the temple. And all of that is prophesying that one verse, that Jesus would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, the side of the transaction at the temple, the ultimate recipient being a potter, and in the nature of the transaction, it's a purchase of blood used to buy a field. And remember, the people in the temple knew they couldn't just accept the money because it was blood money. And so they used some creative accounting, bought some, some a field, prepaid expenses in advance so they could bury people later with it. And that's all in Zechariah eleven thirteen. And then in verse 14, then I cut asunder my own other staff, even bands, that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel 
Remember, God severed that relationship between Judah and Israel. They were split. They were destroyed in 70 AD and scattered. So now, because of that, the close of that verse, between verse 14 and 15, you have the entire church age, the entire church age, and then God looks into the tribulation at something during that seven-year period, which is just fascinating. So remember, right now, Israel is temporarily blinded from Luke 19, verse 42, saying, remember Jesus, when he came in on the donkey on time, he weeps over Jerusalem and he tells them, if thou hadst known even thou at least in this thy day the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. Now what's amazing is that Jesus himself held Israel accountable for not knowing the time of his visitation when he was going to show up. He held them accountable for not knowing prophecy. So it's no wonder why Satan is so deliberate on attacking the church for studying prophecy. He doesn't want the church to know prophetic things because why? Revelation 19, the spirit of Jesus is, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Everything prophetic in the Bible points to Jesus somehow. And if Satan can keep that out of your life, then you lose a lot of the Bible and building your faith and walking boldly because it's one of the only ways that God authenticates his message is to write history in advance. And so Israel was judged for that. They should have known on time from Daniel 9 when he was gonna show up. But they're only blinded. Now, don't misunderstand, Jews can be, have come a part of the church. There are many Messianic Jews that are a part of the church, but corporately as a nation, they are blinded temporarily. And they're blinded until Romans eleven twenty five. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Now, if you go in the Bible, go to Blue Letter Bible and just type in until and just mark everywhere in the Bible you find the word until because something very important usually happens every time God says until. It's really a pretty cool study. But they're blinded until the church, the fullness of the Gentiles, the church age is complete and we go home in the rapture and those scales fall off of Israel's eyes. And unfortunately, we know we'll find this in Zechariah 13 when we get there, but two out of three Jews died during the tribulation, unfortunately. Uh, one out of three died the first time in World War II. So it's no wonder why Jesus said, it will be a time of trouble unlike anything that's come upon the world. Now, between verse 14 here and the next, like I've mentioned, comes the entire church period. You can actually find in the Bible, there are 24 spaces in the Bible of time where the church is hidden between two verses. And those 24, why 24? Well, it links to the 24 characteristics of Jesus from Revelation chapter one. If you study the book of Revelation, it's all laid out in a very deliberate manner and in chapter one, there are 24 characteristics of Christ. We won't go through all of these, but they're in your notes. You can go and study this, where the, the characteristic is and what verse in chapter one of Revelation it shows up in. But those 24 link to the 24 spaces in the Bible that the church age happens between. And it's also why in Revelation four and five, 
God calls us, the church, the 24 elders. He gets that number because of those 24 spaces and the 24 characteristics of Jesus, who is the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church, and we are the body of Christ, right? That's God's using that intentionally because when you look at his characteristics, he literally builds up the church himself. Really, really cool study. Okay, to open up here in verse 15, and the Lord said unto me, take unto thee yet the instruments of a foolish shepherd. So there will be a very specific false shepherd who ushers in the tribulation when Israel affirms a covenant with him or it, whoever it is, maybe some fallen angel or something, but Israel affirms a covenant. He affirms a covenant with Israel from Daniel 9. That's the trigger point to the start of the tribulation. Okay, you've got it. When we're studying prophecy, you have to be very deliberate. The rapture of the church doesn't start the tribulation. What starts it is, is Israel affirming a covenant with the Antichrist. That's all from Daniel 9. So that's what triggers the start of the last seven-year period in Israel's history. Okay, the tribulation. There could be a wide gap of time between us going home and the Antichrist rising to power. So just keep that in mind. We don't know if it's three hours, three days, three months, 30 years, 300 years. We don't know. God, God has that hidden in the Bible for some reason. But in any case, it's just interesting to think about. Now, this false shepherd, this is what Jesus meant in John 5, verse 43. I am come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. He's speaking to the Jews. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. He's speaking of the false idol shepherd. And in this word, in the Greek, the word Jesus uses for another is alos. Now, in the Greek, there are two words for another, alos and heteros. Okay, alos means another of the same kind. Heteros means another of a different kind. So, say you're, you're writing something and you're using a blue ink pen, but now you want a red ink pen. You would use the word heteros in Greek. You'd say, I want another pen, but a different kind. I want a red one now. It alos means I want another blue pen of what I just was using. And so what Jesus is saying is there's someone that's going to come that is a Jewish rabbi presenting himself as the Messiah that they will accept. So it's another of the same kind, even though he's a false Messiah. Now, the world seems to be ready to welcome a leader with answers, if you think about it. You know, I had some amazing, I mentioned this kind of during the announcements, but four years ago when we were starting to spiral, the world was starting to spiral into craziness, and how many global leaders got on the stage and said, you know, we just need a one world government to figure this out. And it's kind of some predictive programming of sorts because how many people were ready just to line up and accept that should they have ushered it in? Now, God intervened and he, he put that down for a season, but I think what he was doing, this is just my speculation, I think what he was doing was allowing the church and for his people to see, just to get a small taste of what the tribulation will, will look like. Just a small, hey, this is kind of what life will be like. Now, it's going to be much, much worse, but the setup, right? You're seeing the setup. 
So it should give you a sense of urgency to live for him even more. Now, the Antichrist will come with all lines, signs, and wonders. And what will those look like? Well, since 2017, Tucker Carlson on Fox News started talking about UFOs and aliens, and it's all lies. All of it is lies. Uh, yes, those things are some kind of fallen angel, and whatever is happening, it's very demonic and evil. It's very dark. Uh, we know from the Bible that angels can manifest in and out of our dimensionality at any time, right? They can show up. They can transform themselves to be angels of light. They can look good, look bad, whatever. But all of that is wicked. And so don't be scared by it. You know, it's something that they've been rolling out over years. And Satan may use that in the end times for some type of deception. We're just not sure. But the, we do know the Antichrist will not be revealed until the gathering of the church. Okay, the idle shepherd from Daniel 11, starting in verse 36, the king shall do according to his will and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God. So the Antichrist will magnify himself above any other religion on, on earth. So Muhammad, Buddhism, uh, Hinduism, Catholicism, you name it, he's going to come and say, none of those are your gods anymore. You know, I'm the only God and above the God of the Bible, most importantly, right? The true God and shall speak marvelous things against the God of gods and shall prosper till the indignation, that's the tribulation, be accomplished for that that is determined shall be done. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers nor the desire of women. Now, this is a hint here in verse 37 that he may have a Jewish background, the God of his fathers. He will regard not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The desire of women, this is a Hebrewism for all women in Jewish history wanted to be Mary. They wanted to be the one to bear the Messiah. But God picked Mary. And what he's saying here is the Antichrist will not, he will not regard that. That doesn't matter to him. And so he just shows up in this way. Now, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. But in his estate, he shall honor the God of forces. That's a link to Revelation 3. And a God whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver. Now, isn't that amazing that he's honoring Satan with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things? Thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strange God whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory and he shall cause them to rule over many and shall divide the land for gain. Doesn't that sound familiar? Satan's always wanted to divide the land of Israel constantly. Even right now, since October 7th, when the Gaza attack happened, what happens? You know, all the leaders start coming out. Well, we need this two-state solution. And if you've noticed, every single leader that has spoken out against Israel's right to defend themselves and right to the land, something bad has happened to them since that's occurred. Isn't that amazing? The, the guy in Turkey, right, that just keeled over. And then you've got, I mean, all of a sudden, Ukraine is pushed to the side and the whole world is focused on God's land yet again, Israel. It's just incredible. Okay, in verse 16 here, for lo, I will raise up a shepherd in the land which shall not visit those that be cut off, neither shall seek the young one, nor heal that that is broken, nor feed that that standeth still, 
but he shall eat the flesh of the fat and tear their claws in pieces. See, God's saying this idle shepherd, he's going to chew up the flock. He's not going to lead them. He will not be a shepherd that gives his life for the flock. He'll be a shepherd that demands their lives. And so a very different shepherd. In verse 17, so woe, here's the last verse of chapter 11 here. Woe to the idle shepherd that leaveth the flock. So there's another hint. Somehow maybe he's tied to the Jewish people because he leaves the flock. The sword shall be upon his arm and upon his right eye. His arm shall be clean dried up and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. So something happens to the idle shepherd in the tribulation. Now remember, so his right arm shall be clean dried up and his right eye is darkened. And he receives a a major blow, a head wound, and his arm gets severed somehow in some kind of a battle. And we'll know from Revelation that there's a false resurrection at that point. And all the world will look at him and go, well, this has to be the Messiah. This has to be the king because here he was dead supposedly and he's resurrected again. The first word here in verse 17, woe, it's used by God commonly in the Bible as like lamenting. And you can see that in 1 Kings 13, 30, Jeremiah 22, 18, Isaiah 1, 4, etc. And the word attests to the coming judgment. It, it always link, is linked to God's judgment coming on whoever he's saying woe to, okay? So we're studying the rise of this prophecy all the way back in Genesis 3.15. This is amazing. Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. So remember the Nikesh, the shining one, comes into the garden, betray or really deceives Eve. She didn't completely know God's word. She added to it. Remember he says, Uh, what did God say about the tree? And she said, oh, he said, you shall not eat of it or touch it. And God never said that. He said, he shouldn't eat of it. And he stopped. And she added to his word and thus she was deceived and fell. And then God, as a result, declares war on Satan from that point on. And notice in verse, verse 15 here, the personal pronouns used. Thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head. In other words, Jesus will bruise, will crush your head, the seed of the woman. This is the first time God actually prophesies a virgin birth in the Bible because the seed of the woman, it's a, it's a contradiction in biology, but God's prophesying that Jesus will be the seed of the woman, a virgin birth, the Messiah will come, crush the head of Satan, that serpent of old, while it bruises his heel. In other words, the cross, crucifixion. The Messiah will crush Satan's head. So, but God declared war at that moment on. God declared war, the seed of the serpent. And that's all what we're studying is the seed of the serpent, the idle shepherd. Okay, and then he crushes Satan when he comes back. Remember, he puts Satan in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. Then he's unchained at the end of the millennium for a season. Then he casts him into the lake of fire at the end of the millennial reign, that thousand year period where Jesus rules on the earth. Now, all of this is in Revelation 13, 3, where you see the Antichrist get this head wound. So let's look at this. And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death. See, it's a false death. 
the Antichrist receives a wound, but it's a false death. And his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. So all the world basically looks and just wonders, wow, this guy was, he was, he was wounded in war, and yet here he is rising back. He's resurrected to life. And this is the first of three times in Revelation 13 that the final world's leader, his head wound is mentioned. There's something very, very specific about this head wound that it draws people into him. And the head wound described in Zechariah, like I mentioned, I think it's the only physical description we have of the Antichrist. So he's the idol shepherd. In verse four here, back in Revelation 13, and they worship the dragon which gave power unto the beast and they worship the beast saying, who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? So because of this, the people of the earth are saying, wow, this guy must be the true God of gods. Who could ever make war with this guy? And so the people will knowingly and openly worship Satan at this point in the tribulation, the dragon. It's a satanic trinity. Don't ever forget that, that everything Satan does is a counterfeit. And so you have Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet trying to emulate the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the tribulation. And the dragon gives power to the Antichrist, but who gives power to the dragon? The Lord allows this for a season. So you have to, you have to keep in mind that everything you see going on in the world right now, the Lord is restraining himself and giving the, the world time to repent at this moment. You know, everything you see going on, uh, God God could step in at any moment, just bring the church home, get this thing over with and, and usher in the kingdom, but he's allowing a season for these people to repent and those come to him while there's still time, while the door to the ark is opened. But the people will praise him. The people will praise the Antichrist during this time and who will make war with him. The one who gives power and allows this to happen is the one who is not, is not only able to make war, but will win that war. So, they're gonna find out their answer when Jesus comes back and makes war with him at the end of the tribulation. In Revelation 13, five, and there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies and power was given unto him to continue 40 and two months. Now, everywhere you see the Antichrist show up in the Bible, he's always speaking blasphemy against God. He's always railing against the God of gods, against the most high. And... It's amazing, you know, if you've been a Christian for long enough and you're following Jesus, you will find people will have something to say about you and they'll, they'll try to tear you down with words and plant seeds of doubt or whatever it may be. They'll try to just rail at you and blaspheme. It's always a tactic of Satan, okay? And you find that in Revelation 12. Remember, he's an accuser of the brethren. So if you're being accused of something, that really has no merit in your life, just take that as a, as a feather in your cap that you're doing something for the Lord, right? Because Satan is an accuser of the brethren. And you also have to be careful not to let that characteristic or that trait creep into your life. You know, as a, as a follower of Christ, you don't wanna go around accusing other people of things. Uh, that can lead to a lot of, of misconception um, and twisted words and, you just want to, to slander someone's character. But the final world leader, he's always running his mouth, as I mentioned. So look at Daniel 7, 8, 11, 36, Psalms 52, 4 through 5, 2 Thessalonians 2 through 4, 
all of these are about the Antichrist just railing his mouth against God. So look at how power was given him yet again. It's from the Lord. And in Revelation 13, remember the tribulation, it's seven years and God's calendar is always 360 day years all through the Bible. So you have 360 day years, you have, and then God describes it as three and a half years, 1260 days or 42 months. He breaks it up into these categories all over the Bible. And there are some references for you. Half of the 70th week of years in Daniel 9 and Revelation 12, 1260 days in Revelation 11 and 12, 42 months, time, times, and the dividing of time is one way God uses it in Daniel 7 and 12, Revelation 12. Just It's all over the Bible. So when you see that as you're studying the word of God, just know that's what he's talking about, are these half designations. Okay, and he opened his mouth and blasphemed against the God, against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. Now, I find that fascinating that there's three things the Antichrist will blaspheme in the tribulation. God's name, God's tabernacle, and a group that dwells in heaven. Now, I think that is fascinating because there's a group of people dwelling in heaven that the Antichrist will have something against. And it's just kind of my speculation, but it could be a reference to the raptured church, the group dwelling in heaven, because you see that in Psalms 83, actually, too, that when the, the surrounding nations around Israel come and try to wipe them off the map in this war that's yet future, it's still prophetic to happen, they blasphemed Israel, God's people, and them that dwell in heaven. And see, there's something, something happens when we go home that the restraining Holy Spirit's removed from the earth and God's enemies start blaspheming and railing against you and I. And I think that's fascinating because another thing Satan was trying to do in 2020 was accelerate things to get his ch our ch church, God's church, the global church, caught into the tribulation. See, if he can change times and seasons and he can nullify God's word somehow, then he wins in his mind. He's got to find a way to break God's word. It's all, the attack is always on the word of God. That's why he came to Eve and questioned it and tried to challenge her on the word of God. Remember how he tempted Jesus in the wilderness? It's always with the word. And he's trying to break God's word. He's trying to take it out of context. He's trying to twist it enough to make it not come true. If he can do that, then he wins. But I think that's fascinating that the Antichrist does that. In verse seven, and it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. Now, power's given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. But which saints? Now, you've got to always rightly divide God's word because the word here is nikeo, which means to conquer, to overcome, to conquer the saints. Okay, in Daniel 7, verses 21 and 22, God said, I beheld the same horn, that's the Antichrist, the little horn, made war with the saints and prevailed against them until the Ancient of Days came, that's Jesus, and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Now, when you study the Bible, you have to recognize there are lots of different groups of what God generically calls saints. 
from Adam to John the Baptist are what you could refer to as Old Testament saints. Remember, Jesus said the law and the prophets were until John. And what he's saying is the Old Testament closed with John the Baptist. Now, when you get to the New Testament and the church is formed, that's why Jesus in Matthew 16, verse 18, he says this, I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, now Jesus is not pointing to Peter, he's pointing to himself right here, upon this rock, I will build my church. He's not, he's not saying upon Peter, the whole church will be built. What he's saying is, you'll be called Peter, and upon me, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now that is interesting, because in Revelation 13 and Daniel 7, the gates of hell are prevailing over some group of saints. But yet Jesus promised in Matthew 16, verse 18, that it would not be over the church. See, he's talking about a different group of people. The people he's talking about are the tribulation saints. There's this whole group of people after the rapture of the church. It's the fifth seal in Revelation 6. It's the martyred saints, the saints in the tribulation that accept Jesus that are saved, they are a different group of people. They're not considered the church. And unfortunately, that group of people, they are overtaken by the Antichrist. And again, notice that the Antichrist has power over all kindreds, tongues, and nations. It's not just a local thing in Israel. It's a global issue. Okay, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So what I want you to do is look at this. We're going to close with this. The only way you end up worshiping this final world leader is to completely and forever re reject Jesus, number one. And everyone that has ever been created has had their name written in the book of life. So notice it is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, when was the world laid? Genesis 1.1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, from God's perspective, the sacrifice to write you in that book happened before you were ever born. And that's why he calls it the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. And that's how your name could be written there from the beginning in Psalms 139. And the book of life, the book of life and blotting out those who reject Jesus. You know, my first question, for whom did Jesus die? Well, we know from Hebrews 2.9 that Jesus tasted death for every man, every man. That's everyone from Adam all the way until the last person. That every man he tasted death for. Are you sure he died for everyone? Yes, I'm sure. 2 Corinthians 5.14 through 15, for the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, he died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him who died for them and rose again. So for whom does God love? It's the most famous verse in the whole Bible, right? John three sixteen, For God so loved only a very select group of people. No, that's not what it says. He loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You and I are whosoever. 
Okay, for whom is God's will? 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and everlasting life. That's his will. His will is that all should be saved. He died for everyone, and that's his will. Now, in the book of life, you'll find this a few spots in the Old Testament. When someone rejected God, he had no choice but to say, I've got to blot them out of my book. And I've always found this fascinating. In Psalm 69, 28, look at this. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. Exodus 32, 32 through 33. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. And the Lord said unto Moses, whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. And what God is saying, look at Mo Moses was amazing. He was willing to give up his salvation for his, the people of Israel. That's commitment. Moses is saying, hey, if you will just blot me out instead of all of them, then, then let's do this. I'll give up my salvation for that. That's, that's pretty bold. Okay, Revelation 3, 5, he that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So Jesus again is saying, I'm promising you that if you are saved and overcome, I will not blot out your name from the book, the book of life. Now look at Psalms 139, 15 through 16. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. And did you know that you were formed in the lowest parts of the earth? That's pretty, that's pretty radical. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, so before you were saved. And in thy book, all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. See, when you put all this together, your name is in the book of life while you are still unperfect, not saved, and before you were ever born, before you were ever formed into your mother's womb, wonderfully and fearfully made, your name was written in the Lamb's book of life because Jesus died for everyone and his will is that everyone accepts him. He paid the price for everyone. And unfortunately, those that don't accept him will spend an eternity apart from him trying to pay that price themselves. And they'll never get there. They will never get to that point. And when he, you reject him, when someone rejects him, he has no choice but to blot their name out of his book. And that must be the most difficult thing for God to do, I would think. I would think his heart just breaks and weeps every single time that happens. But you cannot reject something if you're not given the chance to receive it, right? 2 Thessalonians 2.10, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. They rejected it. They received it not. And so with the book of life, you know, it's amazing if you have someone in your life that is not saved, a friend, a family member, anyone, you've got to do everything you can. And it may be as simple as just being in your quiet place, in your closet, on your knees, praying for them, but lift them up because 1 John 5, 13 through 16, anything you pray according to the will of the Father, he hears you and you can have the confidence that he will act. He will stand up and act. 
And his will is that that person be saved. So pray that. Pray over them. Pursue them. Live a a life that can witness to them. Now, to close out here, Revelation 13, 9 and 10, if any man have an ear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with a sword must be killed with a sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. So seven times in chapters two and three, remember Jesus says, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And here it's not to the churches, it's to any man because the church is gone in the tribulation. And the world will once again, will finally, will finally get uh, the judgment that God has laid up all of these years. Man, he's patient. He is really patient. But the idle shepherd, you know, you need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We need to pray for Israel. We need to pray for the Jewish people. Uh, they are going through a lot right now. It's amazing, though. I mean, praise God that the United States stood up and stood with Israel when all this happened. And we sent warships over there. I mean, if you think about it, every major nation in the world right now is in the Mediterranean and in the the Persian Gulf right now, present. I mean, it's like a powder keg, and it could just spark at any moment. So we need to pray for peace because I, I believe God still has something for us to do and to continue building his church and to pouring into his people And people need the word of God right now. They are looking for answers. And I just pray that for every one of us, that we would take our calling serious. You know, wherever God has you in this world right now, whatever sphere of influence you have, take it serious because God has blessed each one of us in here with something to do right now in the last days. And I don't know if the rapture will happen in our lifetime or not, but if you just look at the seasons You know, we need to be like the sons of Issachar who knew the times and the seasons and knew what they needed to do. And that's that's our role right now. You and I should look at the world and know, hey, we're drawing closer, we're drawing closer. We're looking at the setup. It's not to be fearful. It's to be actually to have more of a sense of urgency to get right with him and to go out and to pursue the greater things of God right now. Because in a blink of an eye, this whole thing could just be over and we're home. Even if, even if it doesn't, the rapture, like I said, doesn't happen in our lifetime. I mean, you are not promised tomorrow. We're not promised any more time. You know, but God wants, God has a calling on your life. And, and I just pray that in this new year, as we, as we step across into 2024, that you guys would all take that call serious and just get into the word of God every day. Spend time in the Bible and let God speak to you. It will keep you from drifting away from the book of Hebrews. Remember, the whole book is structured around these five warnings and each one builds upon another. So you start to drift away, then your heart gets hardened, then you fail to mature, and then you start to commit willful sin, and then ultimately you refuse God. And then it goes back up because remember, it moves like a snake, slithers. Then you start to commit more willful sin you fail to mature even further, your heart gets even harder and you drift even further away. And then you go up and down this scale throughout life. And so many Christians, unfortunately, get caught in that trap where they're saved, but they just don't know what to do with it. And they don't know how to break free out of this bondage that the enemy had them entrapped in. And I just pray that this year, 
all of you would take that call serious, that you'd get into the word of God, break free and just watch what God has for you because it's mighty and powerful, I promise. And if, if there's anyone listening that's not saved, it's so simple, Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And just do that today. I know that there are lots of people that find us all over the world online that watch these months, maybe years later, just get saved. If you haven't been saved, become born again right now and, and you will forever be with the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for this time together. God, thank you again for your word. I pray that you'd bless everyone as we go out into the world this week. Be with us, God. Thank you for the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit, both which are the word of God, our piece of the armor that is the word of God. I thank you so much for that, that it's our defense and our offense at the same time. And Lord, I pray that you would defend your people, that you would fight for them, that you would come forward, Lord, and show each one of us what you would have in our lives in this year, in 2024. Thank you so much for it, God. We pray that we would heed your call and have an ear to hear what you're saying to us. Be with us in the year ahead, Lord. In Jesus' matchless name we pray, amen. 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 You guys all have a great week.